Welcome to the Axiom Insights Podcast. My name is Scott Rutherford. This podcast talks about trends and best practices in supporting organizational performance through learning. In this episode, we're talking about communication, with a focus on how culture and language can create obstacles both to understanding, but also to team cohesion and organizational culture. We'll explore how both language and culture can be obstacles to effective communication and how both native English speakers and non-native English speakers can help themselves better understand and be better understood by others. My guest for this episode is Lauren Suprainer. Lauren is the founder and president of Cal Learning, an intercultural communication training, coaching, and consulting company based in New York. I work with global professionals and help them to communicate clearly, persuasively, and appropriately across cultures. So basically, um, my motto is kind of clarity of message, clarity of speech, right? The message itself has to be culturally appropriate and people have to understand you speaking. And those are two things that I work on a lot. Um, Primarily, my clients are in pharma, biotech, life sciences, things like that. I got interested in it. um, It was just a natural progression, really. I had traveled abroad. I lived in Asia for two years, and I worked there teaching English and loved it so much. I came back and got a degree in it and uh, worked as a university director, directing programs in it. And I had a real immersion in the, um, the language and culture for, you know, my entire career. And then 9-11 happened and that was a game changer uh, for many reasons. And I just decided that shortly after I would go start my own company. So I would not be separated from my family again, uh, surprise by surprise. And it was just one of those leaps of faith, like just set up a desk in your corner of your bedroom and get to work. And that was 2004. So that's how I got here. So I'm interested to explore with you a little bit about the, the nature of, uh, of language and culture as they come together around a, uh, a business context where everyone's speaking business to English. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, maybe you could talk us through what are the dynamics there that perhaps a native English speaker would not be aware of? What, 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 what would someone like, and I'll put myself in that, Boat uh, here for the purposes of the uh, uh, example, but you know I'm I'm uh, American. If you can't tell it by my, <laughs> my voice, I grew up speaking English as my first language. Um, what would I miss? What am I not seeing? So I think what's really interesting is it's not just the English speakers are missing; it's both sides of the conversation are missing out. And very often, Americans very often tend to think of diversity as the other people you know, um, that they're different when in fact we are all different, right? And that the American style of communication is just a style of communication and uh, non-native speakers and native speakers have to find like a middle ground. The thing is that native speakers of any language, not just English, but their language kind of sets up their frame on the world um, and how they interact in the world, the combination of their culture and language. And they're completely oblivious to it because they're native speakers. That's just the way things are. So in, in business communication, there are two areas that really um, impact communication, uh, cross-cultural communication. So one is communication itself. They're called language functions, right? So la- language is... Um, like the words and the ways 
right? The words are the grammar and the vocabulary and the spelling and the ways are really the cultural component. So language functions are the how our culture uses those words. So for example, how do I, how do I say no is a really hard one for a lot of non-native speakers, right? And as an American, you say no, right? I mean, but that's how do you say no is being direct is difficult. How do you make a request? How do you make a suggestion? How do you interject in a meeting? And all of these things that any native speaker would know and be able to do easily are not taught explicitly to non-native speakers. Non-native speakers, when they learn a language, generally are learning the words and the grammar um, and not necessarily the nuanced language functions of how to be persuasive, uh, things like that. But also another problem is being direct but not rude is very difficult for both sides of that spectrum, because English is so direct and a lot of non-native speakers say, I know I'm supposed to be direct, but you know, what's the language? How do I say it? And they might come across as rude. Americans who are just being very direct in their natural conversation might be perceived as rude. So that direct speech is also you know, one type of problem. And from the cultural orientation, because there's the communication, right? How do I use the language, uh, the language functions? And then the cultural orientation. So that really creates the mindset of how you're interpreting what's going on and how you're interacting in situations will be based on your cultural orientation. How are you viewing this interaction? What are you expecting of the participants? What are your interpretations of the people and events? So that's really where the, the, the miscommunication comes in. And Lauren says an important part of this are the differences between high-context and low-context cultures and how that influences how people interpret the dynamics of communication. This is a very general framework that I always encourage clients to use kind of as a first best guess when you're in an interaction for cross-cultural interaction. But it's really important to remember it's not binary. It, there's you know multiple dimensions of it. It's on a spectrum, there's a personality involved. So it's not cut and dry, but in general, low context cultures are Germanic language cultures. So like English, German, Dutch, things like that. Um, and low context cultures are direct, they're explicit. Um, they do not, the, the context of the setting does not carry the information the words do. The words that you say are what's important, not necessarily what the context is. And in low context, in high context cultures, which is basically the rest of the planet, like that's one thing Americans and English speakers don't know is that their communication style is absolutely the minority communication style on this planet, that direct task oriented. Um, and so basically everyone else, all the other cultures are high context which is where it's much more indirect because you're concerned about the relationship is important, um, the hierarchy, you know, where am I within a business setting? Where do I fall in the hierarchy? How do I respond to the hierarchy? Those things are very important. So you have this, the, like three main areas of the differences in these that really I've repeatedly seen conflict as the uh, sources of conflict in the business setting is the difference between the low context, direct, concise, explicit 
communication. And then the high context, which is indirect, it's digressive, it's often very flowery. Um, and so those two different communication styles, right? One seems rude, being direct, and the other, um, you know, what are you saying? What's your message? I don't understand what you're talking about. There's so much digression, it's so indirect. So this, the communication style of direct, indirect, uh, task versus relationship is a huge source of cultural conflict. Am I, am I focused on the task and the outcome that would be low context like Americans, or am I focused on the relationship, which would be high context? So that is, and I can even give you examples, you know, if you need, but that's a huge source. And the last one also is the difference of the low context American, my rights and my needs, me, the individual, versus the high context hierarchy. You know, how do I offer an opinion? Uh, to someone higher up the ladder than me, for example. So those three differences, just constant sources of conflict cross-culturally. Um, and as we yeah. were, as we were um, getting ready to sit down and, and record this podcast episode, you used a phrase, I'm, I'm going to probably misquote you so you can correct me, but uh, okay. the dynamic, which I thought was fascinating, was the idea of two groups of people or, or a group of people who all coming in from different perspectives and speaking in different languages using English words. Yes. And I thought that was a fascinating way to put it. Yeah, it's really interesting. Um, I had, I don't know if I told you this, but I had uh, an interview with a company and uh, the man I was dealing with was uh, Indian, Hindi speaker. And we were talking about business writing and he was saying about, you know, I really like the fluff. I like the fluff of business writing. I like the how have you been and how's your family? And I said, Okay, but in business English, the very first thing you cut is the fluff. Uh, and he was not having any of that. But what I realized after what he wanted to do was have Hindi communication with English words. And that's a real source of miscommunication, right? You think, oh, they're speaking clearly. But their cultural style is completely different. How important, you know, their perception of what's going on and, and, and if you're being rude or if you're being indirect, all of that is through your cultural filter. But people say, well, why are we not communicating? We're speaking with the same <laughs> words, right? Yeah. But it's that cultural orientation, that cultural filter. Absolutely. And to maybe take that example a little bit further, what someone coming from uh, India might think of as appropriate and necessary to set the context of a, of a communication, you know, I, I might consider oversharing as an American. Absolutely. That's another thing I, I try to share, because I think it's important, like I said, it's not just Americans learning about them, it's them learning about America, it's everyone learning about everybody, right? Um, and that it goes back to that task orientation. I don't want to share my relationship information with you. I'm here for the outcomes of a task and that's it. I don't want to have to tell you how my kid's doing. I, not, it's my personal business. And so that's also another, you know, that affects the relationship. You know, like you said, I don't feel like sharing. So are there any uh, tips that you could think of that, uh, you know, if, if, if someone's listening to this and, and some of this is resonating, as I'm sure it is, with anybody who, who has a diverse uh, group of colleagues or, or, you know, business counterparts, um, as I think most of us, if not, if not, we all do at some point in our, in our, our, our careers, uh, 
where do you start to, is just understanding that these dynamics is, exist? Is that the first step? How do so you, how do you get your arms around this? Because it, it does seem like it could have massive, in, right? infinite, <laughs> infinite facets, right? So a couple of things. Uh, you have to have audience awareness. Like it's all about audience. Who am I speaking to? Where are they from? What are their, what are their expectations? What's their, like you have you have to be aware of the other person. And I always say you can't have, in order to have audience awareness, you have to remove your ego because it's not about you. And you have to um, listen to the person speaking. So, and I'm just going to give you one example. Um, A lot of people have problems with Muslim women who want to wear hijab. Listen to the women who are wearing it and listen to their reasons and understand them from their perspective. It doesn't mean you have to agree. It doesn't mean, but you do have to respect and you do have to listen. And that's like the baseline. Um, you don't like just the idea that you don't have to agree to be respectful, I think is really a big thing. Listening, paying attention, removing your ego from the situation, being quiet and listening just be quiet. That's the greatest advice I can give. Uh, yeah, so those are just general. And, and the willingness to learn, the willingness to see from someone else's perspective, or at least try to, to, to get a better understanding. And, and once someone feels heard, that just changes everything, right? Then they really feel like they belong. Like, if you, if you ever, anyone has, who's listening has ever presented and you look out at your audience and you can see their body language is saying, I'm not understanding you. I'm not following this. This is boring or whatever. That's the audience awareness. Isn't just listening to their words. It's paying attention to their body language, to their energy almost. Right. It's what Japanese call reading the room. I mean, reading the air, reading the air, which I love, which we don't do at all. Americans don't do that at all. Um, So that would be your first step. Um, It's also, I have found helpful, if you think things are going sideways, to try and clarify and understand, give the person an opportunity to express themselves fuller. Can, you know, I'm a little unclear about this. Could you please tell me more about, tell me more about that is just the greatest sentence ever. Um, because it acknowledges the other person, it gives you a chance to figure out what's going on instead of jumping to your conclusion, and then you can kind of tweak it. You know, I'm not going to say this, I'm going to say this, but being fully aware of their responses, not just their words, their body language, their energy. Um, You know, can you tell me more about that? Even things like that would really be helpful. Tell me more about that, and then listening and reading and reading the air. I think is the phrase you use, which I like. Yeah. So, so taking the time to to absorb what you get back, right? And also learning. I mean, you have to actively seek to learn about the different cultures. Like that's kind of walking into any general problem that you're saying. You know, we're going sideways, but start looking for. I call them generalizations, which are different than stereotypes. Generalizations are when you're looking for common patterns that you might be able to expect. So you can at least, I call it the first best guess, right? So for example, if I start a communication with someone 
uh, who's from Latin America, I'm going to guess that there's going to have to be some small talk relationship stuff and that I'm not going to talk business over lunch. I mean, I'm going to have certain expectations. That's my first best guess. If that person doesn't fit that generalization, then I'm open to learning and changing. But it really helps to get be like, oh, okay, you know, my experience is that Canadians will behave this way. And my experience, and that kind of gives you a way of judging how you should react. For example, I've, you know, I know if I'm talking to a Hasidic man, I don't put my hand out for him to shake it because they don't shake hands with women. And so why would I want to make him uncomfortable? Serves no purpose. So even that just building up an awareness, kind of a filing, keeping a list of, you know, traits that you recognize and can perhaps expect and how can you be comfortable within that and make them comfortable within that as well. Which is a starting point, I would imagine. And then, yeah. then of course, in the moment you, you respond to how that, how that uh, sort of unfolds, because, you know, as you were saying earlier, it really is about meeting everybody meeting in the middle. Uh, and, and so you can have a starting point of how you expect that might go and then react to how, how the other person might be trying to adapt to you. Yes. And the most, I, I mean, this is so basic. I can't believe I have to say it, but so many people don't realize it. The only person you can change is yourself. That's it. <laughs> Full stop. <laughs> so if you're waiting for the, you know, shy Asian person to suddenly just start volunteering information in large group settings, you're not going to have as great success as a trainer than if you put them in smaller groups to start where they don't, they're not on display. This has been my experience. Just that type of awareness and what's the best way to make that person feel comfortable so that the interaction that you want can continue successfully. And so I wanted to ask Lauren more about how this type of training and coaching changes depending on how it's being delivered, whether it's coaching one-on-one, working with a small group, or trying to facilitate broader change within an organization. The one-on-one stuff is very specific to the exact needs of the person I'm coaching. Um, some of them do a lot of presentations. Some of them don't even, you know, want to work on their clarity of speech because they give so many public speaking events. So there's a variety of things. The group work that I do is very often really foundational. I, find, I mean, maybe it's foundational to me because I do this all the time, but it's very eye-opening just to be bringing awareness as kind of a foundation of, oh, okay, you know, your direct speech, how does that translate into business writing? Well, we put the purpose of our sentence, purpose of our email in the very first sentence. Many non-native speakers put it at the very end. So that could be confused, like very specific. How is the language used? I do with um, groups, like they really need the language to use, what to say, the words, because they understand the ideas. They say every culture training I attend, they say, uh, you know, speak directly. Uh, What does that mean? What do I say? And how do I do it? So a lot of very practical language that they can use. Um, I use a lot of case studies because I find that people relate to them and they're more quick to volunteer an analysis of a case study than to share their own experience, especially if they're in a company and they're talking about their manager, right? And everyone knows who it is. It's very different than a typical experience that everyone shares. So 
uh, that's kind of helpful for the large for groups. A, a lot of it is about um, cultural awareness, the basic differences, how that affects communication, a lot of self, self-assessment, you know, where do you see yourself in all of this is very important. Uh, and basic things like, you know, the whole direct, concise, and explicit in speech, in your writing. So that's one part. Another part is also, like I said in the beginning, clarity of message and clarity of speech. There are a lot of non-native speakers who really are just not understandable. And that depends on your job. How important is it to be understandable? So for example, a bench scientist who's just working with his team has very different needs for clear speech than someone who has a public face for the company. And I did give you one example that I love. I was working with this Chinese team and they were telling me about a project, Aintuna was their project. And I said, okay, the name of your project is Ein's Tuner. It's not, and say that. so they said, look, if everyone on this team wants to call it Aintuna, what difference does it make? And I thought that was really eye-opening because it's true. Like they just need to communicate on their team. So if the whole team, they're all Mandarin speakers and they all want to call it Aintuna, who cares? They're communicating, right? So what's their need as well? And for um, people who have uh, clarity of speech problems, the whole set of workshops, again, based on very practical, what are you saying? You know, how do you give a presentation that's clear? You know, the stress, the stress and intonation is the bulk of it, really, which is very important in English and often absent in other languages. And, you know, I think that it's so important that it's not just about teaching global professionals how to work in America. It's about teaching Americans how to work with global professionals. It's a, it's a community. It's not just us and them. It's interesting talking about this in the context of some of the broader issues that we deal with in learning and development, you know, talking about DEI obviously is, is also many faceted, including you know, issues about generational communication differences. Absolutely. Uh, you know, a, a, someone who is of the boomer generation speaks and, and prioritizes messaging very different Absolutely. than someone who's a Gen Y or even, you know, someone who's an X or, or millennial, whoever. So there, there are there are opportunities for meeting others in the middle or understanding the communication styles and preferences, even within a culture among generations, right? Right, definitely. And I think it's important when I say about a culture that it's a very broad definition because you know how are gender differences seen within that culture? How is age differences seen within that culture? Uh, racial differences, all of those things affect this whole entire way of communicating the language functions that you choose. And of course, as you mentioned earlier, age is one element of standing that's important in Asian cultures, but that can create a conflict with U.S. business cultures where a focus on age is actively discouraged. Right, absolutely. And that plays to what I said, one of the biggest conflict areas is hierarchy. Age absolutely falls under hierarchy. Gender falls under hierarchy. Um, Age falls under hierarchy. You know, your position in the company, of course, itself on the chain of command is hierarchy. But I, I have a really great example that I'd like to share about that. I was working with, um, Korean woman, she was young, she was a dynamic go-getter, zooming up the corporate ladder. And she had a male Korean, she had a Korean man who was a direct report who was 25 years her senior. 
And um, if you don't know much about Korean culture, it's very hierarchical and really, really hierarchical. And so there were so many issues at play here, right? She was a woman, he's a man. She's younger, he's older. She's the supervisor, he's the direct report. And she had so much difficulty assuming a supervisory role over him in particular. And he had so much trouble showing her respect. It was really an ongoing conflict based, in my opinion, primarily on their cultural orientation of, you know, males and females and, and age and, and hierarchy in the company. And so they were in a meet. She told me that they were in a meeting. She was speaking and he reached over and he snapped his fingers in front of her face. And my jaw almost hit the ground. I said, what did you do when he did that? And she said, well, I didn't do anything. I didn't want him to lose face. Right. Which goes back to that relationship thing that we do not see that they, they, everything is the relationship. And for us, it's so much more the task. And I said, well, do you realize that you completely lost face in front of your team by not responding to that? Like that stuff has to be called out immediately on, on the spot. You don't have to, you can say, we'll speak about it later, but you certainly should say to him, do not snap your fingers in my face. And we will just talk about this more later and get back to it. Um, and even though she knew that as a supervisor, the overlay of that age and the gender and the hierarchy, just she couldn't break away from her cultural orientation, which I just found that an amazing example. No, I can imagine in that moment, uh, the you know to be to be really put on the back foot is is going to be very difficult to to respond appropriately. Not accepting you know that sort of gender dynamic in the workplace is is foundational now. Right, absolutely. Um, and one of the things that I recommend because I've heard repeatedly, um, and it tends to be the convert the communication that I've seen frequently is a Chinese woman who has a Chinese male supervisor and she wants to speak in English and he wants to speak in Mandarin. And the language itself is hierarchical versus the language itself emphasizing equality in English. And so I always recommend have your conversations in English because you're allowed to be direct. You're allowed to focus on the task. You're allowed to discuss your personal rights and needs it changes the whole dynamic. Um, and so, you know, that's kind of a, not a popular, I don't know if it's a popular opinion, but I always say, if, try to, and even say to them, you know, I really want to work on, if they keep switching to your native language to assume the upper hand, I really prefer to practice my English in the workplace. I really don't get a lot of opportunities, whatever. But bringing in that whole native language, native culture, then it's very hard to be using a different one. One thing that I thought is really fascinating, um, just from a linguistic standpoint, is the growth of English during globaliz- due to globalization, right? So um, now you have, you know, daily Zoom calls where no one on the call is a native speaker of English, but they're using English to communicate. Um, and that's now comp- very different in many ways from native English speakers. I was just checking an email for a client that he had asked me about, and I scroll down and it's written from a, a Chinese woman from, you know, China 
And she signs off like, thank you very much. So kindly for your attention with best and kind regard. I mean, it's lengthy, just like sincerely. Um, and so that is now an accepted norm because that's what high context people are agreeing that native speaker speech is pretty rude and we don't want to use it the way they use it. I had a super, a, a, I was coaching a person and I got a, email from his supervisor, who's also a non-native speaker, right? And it gets confusing when the whole chain of command are non-native speakers. And she was really angry. She said, you know, what is this email below? I got this on a Saturday. What is this? He can't write like this. This is completely inappropriate. And I scrolled down and he had written to his supervisor, do you want to cancel the meeting? I want to cancel the meeting. And I was like, oh my God, this woman was flipping out over this. And I thought, okay, you know, Maybe because he's a subordinate, I want to, uh, do you want to cancel the meeting? I would prefer, right? You can offer his preference. But I said to her, it is 100% okay in any context at all for an American to ask, do you want? And it is not rude. We're actually just seeking information so we can help you. And her response was, well, I know, but I really don't want to lose, have him lose his kind, his kindness or whatever. And so it's really interesting, this idea of, you know, native speakers not owning the language, which is actually kind of a, like a comeuppance. I think it's kind of a karmic comeuppance to have other people changing your language. But things like, um, oh, I was reading this the other day on LinkedIn. This was great. Non-native speakers having a whole discussion of whether it's take a decision or make a decision. Now, I know Americans say to make a decision. I don't really care which, because my whole thing is like, if it doesn't interfere with understanding, it's irrelevant. That's, you're going to understand the message either way. But there was this whole long explanation by non-native speakers who were just 100% sure that you take a decision when it's just your own. No, no, no. You make a decision when it's your own, but you take a decision when it's two or more people. And the native speakers are like, what are you all talking about? Right? But the, everyone's agreeing on it. So I think it's really just fascinating to see. Well, and we don't even agree on that in, in native English, the American totally, make versus the British take a decision. It's, right. And it's irrelevant. That's the thing for me, right. as long as it's understandable, I always say, does the difference make a difference? Really? I do love the dynamic of having a group of people who are trying to operationalize and absorb uh, English as a second language trying to make sense of some of what, frankly, are, are the arbitrary and nonsensical rules of the English language. I, I find I the, Part of me finds that really deeply amusing. I'm so glad I don't have to learn English. I know. <laughs> like, just phrasal verbs alone. I could build a whole entire life around teaching phrasal <laughs> verbs. But, Which would um, probably be a whole different podcast episode. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> but it, just in terms of the native English versus global English, Americans need to learn global English. They do. They can talk native English among themselves. For example, I'm a New Yorker. You don't think I keep my mouth under control every time I interact with my clients? <laughs> like I do because I'm really sarcastic. I'm really witty. I'm really direct. And that just doesn't translate across cultures. You know, that's not going to be perceived for what it's meant. Uh, so Americans have to realize that even if we're speaking English, we're speaking to people with a different lens a different orientation, um, and you have to adjust your own communication to be better heard by them. 
My thanks to Lauren Suprainer, the founder and president of Cal Learning, a firm that's focused on helping learners develop language skills, cultural competence, and the confidence to participate fully and successfully in a multicultural workplace. Lauren is the author of the book Accent Reduction for Chinese Speakers, which can be found along with numerous other resources on the Cal Learning website, callearning.com. If you have feedback or if you'd like to suggest a topic for a future episode of this podcast, please use the contact link at our website, axiomlearningsolutions.com. And thank you for listening to the Axiom Insights Podcast.